I think it was 17 years ago that I received what I can only describe as a moving picture of the Garden of Eden. I was alone in a room thinking about the garden and it must have been from God because what I saw just blew me away and, and the kind of infantile understanding that I gleaned over the years and I literally almost fell off my chair. But in that moment I just knew, I knew the Bible was true. And then only a decade and more later, when I began a deep dive into Genesis 2, did it confirm that image. Hello and welcome. I'm Stephen Buckley, and we're in a series titled Eden to Zion, where you will form a biblical worldview through the story of the Bible, knowing therefore how to go about a proper Christian life. And I'm excited today because we're turning to Genesis 2, beginning with verse 4, and it's a good idea if you've read the chapter beforehand. The first two chapters of Genesis offer different camera angles of creation. Genesis 1 gives an overview of the six days of creation, and then far from a second creation story as some have suggested, Genesis 2 offers a more personal and detailed account of the creation of man and his garden dwelling. Genesis 1-1 to 2-3 is the chronological order of creation. 2.4 is a summary statement and division. 2.5 to 2.25 is a more detailed account of humanity's creation and the home that was crafted in Genesis 1.26 to 29. And this literary technique is called the law of recurrence and it's found throughout the scriptures. Giving a summary and then going back to recount uh, the details it's something that we're familiar with. We see this in movies, literature, uh, telling stories over dinner. I could sense the dismay of Hamilton who writes, exactly why we must not posit unity in Genesis 1-2 to escapes me. You'll find that those who are pushing unorthodox doctrines will uh, suggest the separate accounts, alternative presentations. The context of Genesis 1 is the creation of the universe, and therefore the general Hebrew word for God, Elohim, is used. In Genesis 2, the context is the garden, and therefore the personal and compound use, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, is fitting. Naum Sana explains, the repeated use here establishes that the absolutely transcendent God of creation, Elohim, is the same imminent personal God, Yahweh, who shows concern for the needs of human beings. Yahweh Elohim is used 20 times throughout Genesis uh, chapters uh, 2 to 3, but then only once more in the rest of the Torah, in, in Exodus 9.30, and then around 20 times in the rest of the Old Testament. We see um, Yahweh the God, or Yahweh our God, or I am Yahweh, but very rare to see Yahweh Elohim. That half of the occasions of Yahweh Elohim are used in these opening scenes say something about the personal nature of God and how man's relationship broke down with the introduction of sin. There are essentially seven scenes from Genesis 2.5 to 3.24, uh, scenes with mirror imaging in terms of a narrative or dialogue, the main or minor players, active or passive players. 
scene one reflects scene seven, two with six, and so forth. It commences outside of the garden, the dialogues are conducted within the garden, and the decisive act of disobedience takes place in its very centre. So Genesis 2 covers the first two scenes. Now, some suggest the way that Genesis 2, um, the way that it's written, indicates something that, that's already known somewhat to the reader. Now, it is possible that Adam could have written an eyewitness account of, of what he uh, saw um, and then passed it down to Noah, who was born around 126 years after his death. And then Noah um, could have passed it on to Abraham, who was born just a few years after Noah's death and so forth. Historical accounts uh, would be copied. Oral trans transmission would remain strong. Uh, though for me, there's no doubt that God dictated to Moses the account for precision. We begin with verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Genesis 2.4 serves as a transition for the first seven days and a heading for what comes after. Firstly, the phrase in the day refers to the seven days. There is no number. It's neither connected with evening or morning. So the usage determines it is a summary of the first seven days. These natural headings are found throughout Genesis to introduce major portions referred to as toldot in Hebrew, meaning generations. Um, they tend to begin with the history of or the account of or the generations of and then the name. Here it is the history of the generations of the heavens and the earth. As a title, it refers to what became of the person or in this case, what became of the heavens and the earth. As we'll find out, it became cursed because of sin. The first holdot is sometimes called the tablet of Adam. God forms an area he calls Eden, meaning delight, and planted a garden in the east of it. A delight to the Lord is paradise for us. Indeed, the word garden, paradisos in the Septuagint, is the same word as paradise. Paradise is a place of blessing, one unsullied by sin. Paradise, according to Wenham, is a Persian loan word, originally meaning a royal park. It was the Garden of Eden. It was the paradise of delight. It was humanity's central sanctuary of the cosmos. Eden is often imagined as the garden alone, but the garden was of Eden as a palace garden is planted within its many acres. The descriptive layout of Eden becomes more interesting as we read through the biblical story. Elsewhere in scripture, this paradise is referred to as the garden of God and the garden of Yahweh. Genesis 2 is careful not to use these terms. Hamilton reasons it is perhaps to refrain from giving the impression that this garden is where God lives. He is its planter, but not its occupant. The author of Genesis wanted the reader to gaze upwards to heaven's throne as the life and home giver. As we will discover this, this does not mean that the Son of God did not fellowship in the garden. In verse 5 and 6, we observe three geographic terms and two terms for vegetation. Shrub or bush refers to the bushy inedible plants, and then small plants are the wild cultivated edible plants. 
Now, at first glance, it appears to contradict the timing um, of the creation of vegetation in chapter 1, uh, verses 9 to 13. But is, it, it is the bush or the small plants in the ground or the land rather than the earth. Earth, Eretz, is contrasted with heaven. Ground, Adama, is usually part or parts of the earth that is agricultural. The focus of this scene is the garden so it is the land not the earth in general that the types of vegetation had not yet sprung up outside the the cultivated land we observe the plain um, or the field which is kind of open uncul uncultivated uh, land home to the beasts the wild animals to graze the field is harder to work and man must cultivate it to stop it becoming a field once more this vegetation had not yet sprung up because, as verse 5 says, firstly, Yahweh Elohim had not caused it to rain on the earth, Eretz. Secondly, at this point, there was no man to work the ground. If you argue that the vegetation of verse 5 is referring to the whole earth, then it would mean the entire globe would be unclothed with greenery until either Adam or his children worked it. Regarding rain, it is not referring to the garden alone, but the whole earth, Eretz, had not seen any at this point. Now, does, does this mean that there is no rain until Noah's day? Not necessarily. The lack of rain is connected with the lack of man, and therefore, once man was created, God would then send the rain for cultivation. Living in the north of England, rain can seem like a nemesis, but Biblically, rain is a blessing. To water the land, it says a mist was going up. The NET translates springs would well up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. And early translations such as the Septuagint would also translate it as springs. Hamilton translates groundwater came up from the underworld. The reason being, according to the NET notes, the Hebrew word was traditionally translated mist because of its use in Job 36.27. But Wenham points out that the translation in Job 36 denotes water coming down from the sky, whereas here it is said to rise from the earth. The etymology uh, of the word in a Babylonian text refers to the subterranean springs or waterways and such springs would fit the description in this context since the water goes up to water the ground. This kind of mist or springs from subterranean waterways um, was perhaps the method to hydrate the ground during the creation week uh, before man was formed from it. Another consideration is that of the water cycle, the process of evaporation, cloud formation and precipitation. It, it's unlikely that the, the world's water supply would not have been continually recycled until 1600 years after creation. Verses 5 to 7 are one long Hebrew sentence closing with the formation of man. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Verses 9 to 15 then follows with more detail. Some scholars propose that the garden was planted after the creation of man, following the provision of the food in Genesis 1.29, which was given after the creation of man. Um, now it could be that, or it could be that, that God had formed the garden, uh, but not sprung up certain edible vegetation yet. Either way, we will firstly look at the garden before turning to the creation of man.
So as a gift for man, God caused the groundwater to rise up to the garden to water the crop and soften the ground for agricultural purposes. Three times within chapter 31, Ezekiel refers to the trees of Eden, even the cedars in the garden of God. And these trees, uh, some of which were astonishingly big in my own mind, uh, would form a canopy over the garden under which relationship could grow. Now, of all the trees in the garden, only two things are said. They are pleasant to the sight and good for food, aesthetically pleasing and bearing edible fruit. Apparently, some cedars have edible berries. Now, among the trees, there is a focus on two, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, these trees are not metaphors any more than the trees in your garden are not metaphors. The tree of life. The tree of life is not magical. The tree could have been created with natural healing properties, but the spotlight in Genesis 2 is not the power of the tree, but the planter of the tree. It is God who gives life, not the tree itself. They do not receive eternal life from the tree any more than the Levites received atonement from the blood of the animals. It is the act of obedience that God honours. In those actions of faith, God is gracious. The tree of life would provide healing and rejuvenation for eternal life. Death was never meant for man. Man was designed to live in his habitat forever by perpetually regenerating through the fruit of the tree of life. Now, some say eating once means they live forever. Personally, I think continuous eating means continuous sustenance and healing um, fits better with the scriptures as a whole. Continuing to choose faith in God's provision and means of salvation. God too had planted the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Again, these trees are not magical or begift supernatural powers. They are not independent of God. Our response to his word determines the outcome of eating. Secondly, this was a good and fruitful tree, though once its fruit was tasted, it would lead to the knowledge of good and evil. God did not place a bad tree in the garden with poisonous fruit, but if eaten, consequences would follow. Now, I teach my young children there are two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. Tree of knowledge for short, because the tree of knowledge of good and evil is a long title and they're less likely to remember it. The tree of life, simple. The tree of knowledge and and it's going to get complicated with the knowledge of good and evil. If you choose this option, it's going to get long and complicated. Good and evil is God's perspective. Things that foster life and things that ruin life for him or against him. Eating the fruit from the tree of life leads to life, eternal life. Eating the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil leads to knowledge of good and evil. So what does knowledge of good and evil mean? Well, suggestions include, firstly, a description of the consequences of obeying or disobeying. To obey would mean to know good and to disobey would mean to know evil. But it's not as though there's only one tree. There's the tree of life. Neither is one tree called the knowledge of good and the other the knowledge of evil. The knowledge of the tree is only for God, hence not to eat. They do not receive knowledge of good or otherwise by not eating. 
Secondly, the suggestion that it means moral discernment. Hamilton does reveal this phrase is essentially a legal idonym, meaning to formulate and articulate a judicial decision. But man was already endowed with moral discernment as the image of God, so it seems it must be more than this. Number three, could it mean sexual knowledge? which sounds reasonable because they were naked and not ashamed, uh, like, like children, but sex was a gift from God within the marriage covenant. It wasn't forbidden, in fact, it was commanded. Number four, meaning omniscience, as if good and evil encompass all knowledge. We'll discover that this was far from the result. Shame and knowledge of vulnerability and nakedness would be the outcome. And then number five, that it means wisdom or insight. But why would a certain wisdom or insight be forbidden from man? Wisdom is something that God has, is lacking in children, and something that God gives generously to all. But as Wenham points out, the wisdom literature also makes it plain that there is a wisdom that is God's sole preserve, which man should not aspire to attain. Angelic creatures, for example, there's a lot that we do not know and are forbidden from knowing. The fullness of the wisdom of God in the universe is something that we cannot and should not know. Paul spoke of a wisdom of the world, a kind of foolish wisdom that seeks knowledge independent of God. And with this new insight comes uh, more foolish wisdom propped up by the pride you developed. Quoting Isaiah, Paul says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In Genesis 3, it says the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Ezekiel 28, which we'll come on to, that speaks of the fall, refers to Adam's wisdom seven times. He was full of wisdom, but, but it says you corrupted your wisdom to, be, to become godlike. Wenham says to pursue it without reference to revelation is to assert human autonomy and to neglect the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of knowledge. A self-sufficient knowledge independent from God is that which is forbidden, a capacity of which eating from the tree of knowledge would lead to. Reference to the tree of knowledge of good and evil only appears twice in the Old Testament and it is here in the same chapter. The tree of life, on the other hand, is found multiple times, notably four times in the final book of the Bible, and this should tell us something about the grand narrative of the scriptures. The tree of life is used symbolically of life, a blessing, righteousness in the book of Proverbs. Trees remain green in summer when there is no rain. The tree of life is referred to in pagan literature, but the tree of knowledge is nowhere to be found outside of Genesis 2. Satan wouldn't wish to include consequences now, would he? While obsessing over immortality necessarily apart from God. But the tree, the tree of life, the tree is not magic in and of itself. Sana tells us the preoccupation with death was the most characteristic feature of Egyptian civilization to the prominence of which the mighty pyramids still bear eloquent testimony. Breaking away from pagan mythology, the tree of life is not overly emphasized. Righteous living, not, not death, 
is the focus. Morality, not immortality. A right relationship with God, not magic powers. The the thrill, the suspense, the tension of the story, if you like, lies uh, with, with the purposes of God and the free choice of man. These two trees are positioned in the midst of the garden. The midst does not convey the the exact centre, but rather a prominent place within the central area. It is of note that they are prominent and not obscured along the perimeter. They are on display, an obvious sign pointing to the planter and the free accessible choice, good evil, obedience, disobedience, gratitude with life from God, or envious of the capacity to self-govern. Still, to this day, with a belly full of disobedience, man searches the perimeter for trees of life. With a central position, Dillman says, the tree of life is an essential mark of a perfect garden where God dwells. What kind of trees were they? We are left wondering, but various fruit trees have been suggested. Perhaps they were distinct kinds from all known trees today. Garden rather than paradise is the popular chosen translation for two main reasons. Firstly, because it is a land with greenery, but secondly, because the garden was enclosed by secure boundaries with its only entrance located in the east. It was designed to face the sunshine. Four rivers flowed down to water the garden, providing life to their designated regions. The first river of Pishon flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is pure gold, delium, a sweet-smelling resin from camphor plants, and onyx stone. Pishon is mentioned nowhere else in scripture. Rabbinic tradition has it as the Nile. Havilah is found elsewhere in scripture as both a person and a place. Havilah is one of the five sons of Cush in Genesis 10.7 and Havilah is possibly in the region of central Arabia. The second river is the Gihon which flowed around the whole land of Cush which today is the the region of the upper Nile uh, south of Egypt or Ethiopia. There is a spring mentioned in uh, the scriptures in Jerusalem at the foot of the Mount of Olives named the Gihon Spring. And I've walked Hezekiah's tunnel through which the spring flows down to the pool of Siloam uh, at the south end of the, the old city of David. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The reader would understand the Tigris and Euphrates, so these could be post-flood markers. And for this reason, most place Eden in Mesopotamia. But the topography, even the direction in which the rivers flowed, could differ pre-flood. Noah and his descendants could have named these two rivers after the ones that existed before them. On balance, Eden was situated between pre-flood Egypt and Mesopotamia. Sailhammer concludes that the promised land of Israel is located in Eden. And Jewish tradition connects Eden with Mount Moriah on which the the temple uh, was built in Israel. Jerusalem is very possibly the original location of the garden uh, with a somewhat different landscape than today. Eden is not listed as a region of precious metals and stones. The ground may have contained these, um, but it had been set apart for worship and not mining. We'll see that precious metals and stones 
were displayed in Eden, um, but it was the, the elementary means of living, water, food, fresh air that were abundant. Upstream, the rivers joined from one source, fed from a freshwater spring in the heart of Eden. What would be the focus within the Garden of Eden? The Bible is not explicit in the second chapter of Genesis, though swallowing the scriptures as a whole, what transpired becomes apparent. We know the Lord himself would walk around the garden in Genesis 3.8, who we understand as the Son of God, the pre-incarnate Jesus. And the language used here is that of God dwelling or communing in the garden sanctuary. We learn later that the purpose of the sanctuary, sanctuary synonymous with temple, is so that God could dwell in their midst in Exodus 25.8. The Hebrew word used for walking in Genesis 3.8 is the same to describe God's presence in the tabernacle. In Deuteronomy 12, the sanctuary is a place to put his name and make his habitation in verse 5 and to make his name dwell there in verse 11. Also, this same verb is used in reference to God walking around and protecting the Israelites in the desert. In addition, this same Hebrew verb is used to describe the close fellowship of God with men. Enoch walked with God, Genesis 5, and Noah walked with God, Genesis 6. God would say to Abraham, walk before me, Genesis 17. The garden then was a holy habitat where God's name is planted and conditions were set for man to commune with God face to face in worship and adoration. As well as describing Eden as a temple sanctuary, Ezekiel depicts within it the holy mountain of God with stones of fire that will come onto. Rivers flow downhill, therefore a mountain sanctuary would fit the picture. Psalm 36 also associates the temple with Eden. A sanctuary dedicated unto God is a holy place set apart to be pure and undefiled. It would follow that only a throne within an inner temple structure situated upon his holy mountain would complete the picture. The fountain of life would flow from the earthly throne of God, streaming living water down into the Edenic Delta. The garden, though, as uh, the focal point of the earth, was not the capital from which God ruled. For that, he would delegate to man to mediate the earthly kingdom. It was the garden of God and potentially the earthly throne of God, but it was granted for man to rule from. If you replace the word of with from, it makes more sense. It was of God given to man. Vlack explains that the earth was designed as the realm for God's mediatorial kingdom, yet the new world needed a ruler. Yes, God was king and could directly rule over this new kingdom himself, but this was not his plan. Similarities between the Edenic sanctuary and subsequent temples include both are orientated eastward with a tripart layout, the Temple of Eden of Jerusalem and the eschatological temple are stationed on a mountain. 
Rivers flow down from the Edenic and eschatological temples. Both are associated with precious metals and stones. They are places where God's presence dwelt. Both must be cleansed of sin. Like Eden, all future temples include cherubim. Fire will become an element to guard the Edenic entrance and fire would also be an expression of God in the wilderness and would burn perpetually in the sanctuary. Men are told to work and keep it. The bread of the presence in later temples reflected the food for Adam to sustain him in the garden. Subsequent temples were filled with garden imagery. For example, the menorah, the temple lampstand with branches were adorned with flowers and cups made like almond blossoms. Two tree-like pillars that are given the names Jachin and Boaz positioned at the entrance of the Israelite temples are reminiscent of the two prominent trees in the garden. Perhaps a more popular view is that the menorah and the law represent the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, respectively. The structure of Eden was made in the, in the image of the heavenly temple complex. Harrigan explains, The combination of Genesis, Revelation and the prophets all paint a picture that I believe was clear in the minds of the New Testament writers that God ruled over creation from a paradisal temple in the height of the heavens and humans were created in his image as kingly priests to rule over the earth from the paradisal temple of Eden. The heavens and the earth were created to enhance the glory of God as reflected in the creation of humankind and consequently Consequently, the two realities organically correspond to one another. The paradisal temple of Eden was not a, a prototype that future temples would develop upon. This was the, the finest and original image-bearing temple sanctuary for the earth, planted by God, not man. And future temples would be copies, not of Eden, but of the heavenly one. Yet, they would not come close to the beauty and the majesty of the original garden of God. Eden throughout scripture is pictured as this, this fertile area, a well-watered oasis with large trees growing, a sign of God's presence in and blessing on Eden. The rivers, including familiar names, express that life has spread out from Eden, specifically a family garden into all the earth, every direction. Ultimately, all these nations come from the same living water. A reminder to, to the Israelites to treat all human life as sacred and to, to have a love for all peoples. Now the garden temple is complete, it is ready to be populated and delivered to his new creation. The crowning glory of his creation comes last, mankind, with the woman as the pinnacle of all. But rather than forming two beings in the garden, he begins with just one outside of it. Frutenbaum suggests that the picture is that of Adam being created west of the garden, uh, but within the region of Eden, and then placed in the garden um, in the east. It is possible that he was formed outside of the garden because it has not been created yet. And if so, did he watch the Lord form his paradisal delight? Did this first man observe the garden sanctuary of the original city of peace descend from heaven upon the mountain of the Lord? <laughs> it would mean that the woman was made after both the man and the garden were formed. 
Man is made from existing material that God had spoken into existence. He forms with what he had created. Hamilton masterfully puts, The word of God is now augmented by the work of God, a work that includes both formation and animation. Made in and from the rougher terrain outside the garden is somewhat reflected in the creation of the masculine form. Throughout the scriptures, God is seen to shape or form animals, land, mountains, the course of history, most prominently seen as shaping man from the dust or, or the womb and forming man's character for God's purposes. Here man is described as clay in the potter's hand, formed out of the dust of the ground. Moulding him with his hands reveals the Lord God's deep care and attention in the creative process, forming a family with intention to commune with. Dust or clay does not imply uh, the frailty of man, uh, but rather the raw material as a starting point. That the material was malleable points to the potential malleability throughout man's life, dependent upon the softness of their heart towards God's word. Picturing the potter, um, it doesn't mean it was repetitive and monotonous work, but it's pointing to the care and the preparation, the skill and the planning and the craftsmanship of his creation, as well as God's absolute mastery over man. Man is possessed with dignity, power, purpose within a sphere of freedom. Dust speaks immediately of man's humble beginnings, his undeniable dependency on God, where his body will return and the serpent's judgment. Dust will later be frequently connected with ash, becoming symbolic of humility and repentance, judgment, death, the poor and the position God exalts men from. This first man was raised to life from the dust. Frutenbaum notes that the rabbinic view is that of the, the, the dust was collected from the future site of the altar to symbolise that the altar would make atonement for man's sins. Interesting. Once formed, a lifeless body lies ready to be animated. The Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and only then did he become a living creature. Though man is no ordinary creature, within the Old Testament, two Hebrew words are used for breath, ruach and nishmat. Ruach, meaning breath, wind, spirit, can be applied to God, the, the Holy Spirit, to man, animals and false gods, demonic beings. Genesis 2.7 uses breath, nishmat, of life, kayem, which is only directly applied to Yahweh and man. This breath, spirit, soul of life, is a term set apart for, set apart for man above all creatures. Animals are given, are given the breath of life, the nishmat, ruach, kayem, in Genesis 7.22, which is literally translated the breath of the breath or the breath of the spirit of life, which is different. In Genesis 1.30, with regard to the animals, the ESV uses the phrase the breath of life, but, but the Hebrew nefesh kaya means a living being that has breath, which again is different. Man gifted the divine breath of life, the nishmat kayim, becomes a living 
person. Man's spirit means that God knows man from the inside out. As Proverbs 20 explains, the spirit, the nishmat of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. We learn further that it is the spirit, the ruach in man, the breath, the nishmat of the Almighty that makes him understand in Job 32, 8. Alluding to man's conscience, the spirit gives understanding that allows man to know God. And this understanding should also make us think about the words that we breathe out from our spirit. God breathed his life-giving word into our lives and therefore to expel life-giving words is in harmony and reflection of our creator. Higher animals were made from the ground like man, but man is pictured as having been formed with hands, distinct in that he's made in the image of God and now directly given the divine breath of life from God. That Adam was raised to life by the Spirit reveals something about his identity and calling. Hamilton connects this raising to life with royalty, to be raised from the dust means to be elevated to royal office, to rise above po poverty, to find life. He is raised from the dust to reign. Lamentations 4 uh, records the, the people referring to King um, Zedekiah as the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed. Adam was a royally anointed man. Breathing life into his nostrils forever reminds those on earth that it is, it is he who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. And it is upon his will for it to be removed. The book of Job reveals if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit, ruach, and his breath, nishmat, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust." Once created, this personal spirit is an eternal living soul, facilitating eternal fellowship with God. The soul breathed into the body with an upright posture reflects the likeness of God himself and is what binds man's deepest thoughts to the knowledge and prospect of relationship with him. This spirit-filled man speaks of a, a new humanity to come, the one new man brought to life at Pentecost and the body brought to life at the eschatological Pentecost, led by the spirit-filled new Adam. Adam, Adam, is understood to be both a personal name and used generically for mankind. For this reason, the ESV translates Adam in Genesis 1 and 2 as man, except for the latter part of chapter 2, where it translates Adam as Adam. In the garden looking, looking for a suitable mate, the personal name Adam is fitting. Adam literally means earthling. Prager explains that Adam derives from the word earth, Adamar. Now for clarity and consistency, it's not earth um, arets, but Adamar, which we recognise as, as ground, which is local rather than global, though it can be used interchangeably, hence uh, the, the, the kind of variations in translations. But of course, the context is local at the garden, so groundling from the ground or earthling from the earth both work. It's a Hebrew play on words. Named by God, Adam then is profoundly connected to the ground that he has been given. They are inseparable. Both the first man and mankind corporately are called after the dusty earth we were formed from, man.
Adam is representative of humanity, created and named alone. This one man constitutes the entire world. Creating one creates them all. Jewish commentator Dennis Prager says, Therefore was Adam created singly to teach us that he who saves one life, it is as if he saved an entire world. And he who destroys one life, it is as if he destroyed an entire world. Worth thinking about. Once formed and filled with the Spirit, God placed Adam in the garden sanctuary, and hours would pass before the creation of his wife to instruct him to deliver the commandments and to name the animals. Then he was created outside of the garden from the dust, though it be very good dust, conveys a real privilege to dwell in the presence of the Lord within it, a privilege that was not without its duties. Like any sanctuary, the garden sanctuary would require a priest. Adam is painted as the Edenic high priest. Adam's role in the garden was to work it and keep it. And this specific word pair is found elsewhere in the scriptures to describe the duties of the priests who work the temple. Beale explains, the two Hebrew words are usually translated serve and guard or keep elsewhere in the Old Testament. He continues that this phrase is found elsewhere referring only either to Israelites serving serving God and guarding, keeping God's word approximately 10 times, or to the priests who keep the service or charge of the tabernacle five times. So work can be translated to to serve. Man is there to serve, not to be served. Work was initiated from the beginning. Eden was not Tivoli Gardens, like a playground of entitlement and entertainment and endless pleasure. In the garden sanctuary, there were duties to fulfill. This was not a magic garden that maintains itself. It requires stewardship. An initial glance may point to uh, a calling in respect to agricultural work. And while this may have been an aspect of his role, these two words used in connection are seen throughout the Bible to describe the role of priests. Any uh, gardening required of Adam was in the context of serving uh, as a priest in the temple. Like any temple, it would, it would require maintenance and gardening would be part of maintaining the order of the temple or sanctuary. Now the small plants began to, to began to spring up. The garden was not a pleasure land. It was to be worked and it was to be kept. It was Adam's job as steward of the garden to till the land. God sends the rain and man tills the land. And without both, it turns to desert. He was a royal priest who was not afraid to get his hands dirty. Not to the point of sweating or grueling work, which would only come about after the fall, but man is designed to work from the get-go. The verb keep has a root meaning to exercise great care over, to keep guard, watch over, to protect. The garden, as Hamilton puts it, is something to be protected more than it is something to be possessed. Pastors, priests, elders, listen up. I believe this is one of the keys to solid leadership in the coming days. Forget your stack of leadership books for the moment. Put them aside. On occasion, I've witnessed more compassion over wolves and snakes than I have over the flock in the past 12 months. We need to get to grips with what it means to guard the sanctuary. 
The book of Numbers depicts the priests guarding the sanctuary so that nothing unclean can enter. As they minister, the Levitical priests were to guard all the furnishings, to keep guard over the people. Not only that, they were to guard their priesthood. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Now, don't twist my words here. We don't follow the Old Testament priestly ordinances. The point is that this is a role of great responsibility. If they did not keep guard over the sanctuary, the wrath of God would fall on the people. In 1 Chronicles 9, priests are called guards and gatekeepers who surrounded the four sides of the sanctuary. They were entrusted to be over the chambers and the treasures of the house of God, and they lodged around the house of God, for on them lay the duty of watching. These guards were to ensure that no one should enter who was in any way unclean. In Ezekiel 44, we read, Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the temple and to do all its service and all that is to be done in it. The same verse is translated in the New Living Translation as, They are to serve as the temple caretakers, taking charge of the maintenance work and performing general duties. The picture is one of a warden or caretaker. Are we at times too busy building bigger and slicker and counting the numbers but fail to guard the sanctuary? Does a house packed with outsiders and wolves and snakes appear more impressive? Beale goes on to note of Genesis 2.15 that the Aramaic translation underscores this priestly notion of Adam, saying that he was placed in the garden to toil in the law and to observe its commandments. He asserts that the writer of Genesis 2 was portraying Adam against the later portrait of Israel's priests and that he was the archetypal priest who served in and guarded or took care of God's first temple. What or whom might he be guarding the garden from? Unclean animals and future people who do not keep the law. The priestly phrase is immediately followed in verse 16, uh, as we'll see in a moment, with the giving of the commandments. And this pattern of commandments as the backdrop of these two, these two words, work and serve and keep and guard, is found elsewhere in Scripture in the context of the temple and priestly function. Guarding the sanctuary is to, to ensure obedience to the commandment of God. Brian Peter Lato argues that Adam was the priest father of humanity. Beginning with Adam, we have a familiar priesthood which is meant to be passed on from the father to the firstborn son, thus making him the father priest of the family. The father priest was meant to lead the family in covenant worship. We learn from the New Testament that every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices in Hebrews 8.3. Aside from offerings, Pizzolato points to the sacrifice of service. He says this, Remember, God the Father created his firstborn human son, Adam, a priest. Adam was called to offer the sacrifice of his very self for the sake of his bride, Eve. His priestly lifestyle was to be one of self-sacrifice. There is an interesting nuance of the selection of Hebrew words used for putting Adam in the garden. In verse 8, the typical word for put is used, but in verse 15, although it is translated as put in the ESV, the Hebrew word is different. 
Beale explains, Genesis 2.15 is not the usual Hebrew word for put, but is the word typically translated as to rest. He continues that these overtones of rest may indicate that Adam was to begin to reflect the sovereign rest of God and that he would achieve a consummate rest after he had faithfully performed his task of taking care of and guarding the garden. A consummate rest was in touching distance. Like Adam, Israel will be formed outside and put into the resting place God had prepared. Immediately after instructing Adam in his priestly role, the Lord God draws Adam's attention to the two prominent trees, whom we understand as the Son of God, commanded Adam to keep the law of the land. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the first time we observe the Hebrew word for command in scripture. The form, which literally translates, you shall not eat, resembles the form of the Ten Commandments. Human autonomy is ruled out. This law given to Adam could not be altered, just as the law given to the Israelites could not. The tablets of the law placed in the Ark of the Covenant under the mercy seat, representing the throne of God, were not to be touched or seen, otherwise they would die. The fruit of the forbidden tree could be seen even touched, but not consumed. You, you've been told the law, you do not need to obtain it so that you can change it. Straightforward boundaries have been set, and thus the status quo of the garden is conditional. Man is forbidden from deciding for himself what is good and what is bad. It's for God alone to calibrate law that includes mor morality and, and decide what's in the best interest of man. God uh, delegates roles and tasks, but it's within the framework of God's universal law. Man should not attempt to tamper with the framework. Man is not independent of God and, and in ignoring the prohibition would, would be to declare himself so. The purpose of laws, even within paradise, is to show how to live with a holy God. Man is given freedom within the context of choice and expectation of obedience. Unlike automated robots, God's law is a blessing of choice and a reflection of right and wrong. They are given the option to choose life or death, obedience or sin, opportunity to express worship towards God or worship of his creation. The purpose of the prohibition was the test of recognition of and submission to the will of God. It will test their hearts. Adam's freedom must be underscored. From fatherly provision, he is permitted to eat from any tree and forbidden to eat from just one. His permission far outweighs his prohibition. The tree of life was a freely given gift. Adam was not told that if he worked hard enough, he could earn access to the tree of life. It was not an award for good works, but a genuine offer of eternal life. And in response to this gift, Adam was expected to keep the law of God. The gospel's there. Choosing not to eat 
from the tree of knowledge of good and evil meant a, a continuation of the blessings bestowed upon him. Eating from the tree means a removal of blessings and an introduction of curses. Verse 17 literally, re literally reads, For in the day that you eat of it, dying, you shall die. The latter phrase is an idonym that stresses the certainty of death. Fourteen times this phrase, dying you shall die, is used in the Old Testament. It does not mean that he will be put to death, but that on eating he will certainly die. It refers to a death sentence by divine or royal decree. Now, for those who may object to death as a punishment for breaking God's law, one must understand that sin is so heinous before a holy God that he has the right to destroy sinful man at any time. And we will uh, return uh, to the meaning of this idonym in chapter 3. Adam had not experienced death, so how would he know what God meant? Well, we have not experienced the ultimate hellish judgment, but we understand the, the gravity and the general concept of the punishment. Adam was aware that he, he'd just been created from the ground and that he was given the breath of life, and he would have some understanding of what it means to lose that life on earth. God is not being intentionally ambiguous. He expressed the need to know of the consequences. In addition, there's no record of Adam questioning the commandment, and therefore there's an assumption that he understood. Man was created from the ground, tasked to cultivate it, and if he transgresses the law, he will return to it. The law was delivered personally by God to the head of humankind, and therefore God's law is personal. Equally, breaking it is personal. In summary of the last two headings, Adam was instructed to keep both the garden and the commandment. As the warden in charge of the sanctuary, Beale determines, would not this management also logically include Adam's teaching of God's law to Eve in order that they both would help one another to obey so that spiritual chaos might not set in? Adam then was to guard the garden from sin and defilement, to guard God's word, the entrance to the garden and the two notable trees. He was to live sacrificially and to serve and to offer sacrifice to the Lord God. As the resident priest, he was to cultivate and maintain the order physically and spiritually. Some recognize Adam's encounter with God in Genesis 2 as a covenant. Speaking about Israel's unfaithfulness, Hosea says, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Andrew Dearman recognizes the possibility that Hosea is referring to the personal Adam of the Garden of Eden. Frutenbaum refers to it as the Edenic covenant, uh, though he suggests it includes the words spoken of in the first chapter. Others point uh, specifically to Genesis 2 and refer to it as the Adamic covenant. Biblical covenants are either conditional or unconditional. The Adamic covenant is conditional. Obedience means blessing and transgression means curses. It is contingent upon his response to God's word. Adam is not declared holy at this point. Only the seventh day is mentioned as being declared holy. He was made perfect and holy, but 
His holiness had not been validated. Adam was to be tested for a probationary period. Now, this concept is not, it's not explicit in the text, but a holistic approach to the scriptures confirms this probationary period. Frutenbaum acknowledges the test was for a probationary period only. Theologically, this means that man was created in a state of unconfirmed creaturely holiness, and he was given the ability to contrary choice. He must choose to love the Lord God and in doing so obey him. If Adam passes the test his status of holiness would have been verified and, and from then on he would forever not have the ability to sin. Now unlike Adam um, we were not born with the ability not to sin but you could say that we are on a kind of um, lifetime probation of sorts. We were justified before God, uh, we're in the process of being made holy, sanctification, but ultimately we, we await the hope of the resurrection when we will be rebodied if you've died and then verified holy when we'll be in a condition that means we are not able to sin. The angelic creatures will have gone through a similar probationary period before being declared either holy or evil. If Adam passes the test, he would give birth to righteous children born without sinful nature and therefore the expansion of life that God calls good and therefore fulfilling his role and calling. The roles of Adam were many. His status was second to none. Being a spontaneous creative act, having no biological father, Adam was the son of God, as it says in Luke 3.38, not to be confused with the second person of the Trinity. Adam was not begotten, but created directly from God, the firstborn human son of God. And this title or status is one to esteem. As the son of God, everyone after him would be the son of Adam and therefore righteous and regal, or so it could have been. Adam was the first prophet speaking on behalf of God, naming the animals, delivering his law and passing down uh, the, the commission of Genesis 1.28 for all humanity. The, the Lord would possibly, uh, perhaps lightly, have given an oral memorization of the zodiac for Adam to pass down through the generations. It could be that at the beginning, as the, the heavenly clock started between the lion and the woman, he would picture the start and the end full of mystery set for further revelation. We have already seen the royal and priestly connection. Ezekiel 28 reveals more about Adam's Edenic status. For context, Ezekiel is writing in exile in Babylon. The people of Israel were stunned at the fall of Jerusalem, but they held out hope that the resistance of the city of Tyre to the Babylonian siege could turn the tide. And it's this false optimism and human pride that Ezekiel challenges and rebukes. Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19 can be a particularly complex passage which includes a final prophecy against the city of Tyre. Now in verses uh, 1 to 10 God through Ezekiel rebukes the ruler or the king of Tyre for claiming to be a god and then from verses 11 to 19 is then a, a lamentation over the authority and the splendor of the king of Tyre who has now come to a dreadful end. Ezekiel relates his present day to the events in Eden. He's fusing the story of the priest king of Tyre with the story of the priest king of Eden. 
Now, chiefly because of the mention of a cherub, Ezekiel 28 is often connected with Satan and his fall from grace rather than Adam and his fall. And then these passages are connected with Isaiah 14 and in turn with Luke 10, 18 and Revelation 12, 8 and 9. The satanic element in these Old Testament chapters is widely believed. It's what Michael Heiser believes, who's shot to fame of late. And it's what I believe from a, from a casual study until I was challenged initially by the scholarly work of Daniel Block. But what if Ezekiel 28 is not speaking about Satan, but Adam? What if Isaiah 14 is not primarily about Satan? It means that we've, we've developed wrong ideas about Satan and we've missed the picture that the Bible paints of Adam in Eden. Now, I understand Ezekiel 28 to refer to Adam, which we will assume here, the reasons of which I'll give brief, briefly throughout, uh, and we'll, we'll touch on again when we turn to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, firstly, let's consider uh, the priestly and kingly elements of the following verses. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. For consistency, that's the ESV translation, and it continues with, with the fall from grace of this individual. Now, Adam, not Satan, is being referred to as a seal or signet. Seals were a mark of authority to form a pledge, authenticate a letter or legal papers. Adam was the signet from the Most High as the kingly image bearer acting on God's behalf. Now, Daniel Block affirms that verse 12 suggests that this signet was deputized to represent divinity in paradise. He says the phrase, the signet of perfection recalls the creation of the first man as the representative and deputy of God. Adam, not Satan, is the corresponding authority in the garden. Now twice it mentions the creation of Adam. On the day that you were created, from the day that you were created, verse 13 and 15. The use of the verb bara created in these verses, according to Bloch, recalls the creation of the first human. He says the prophet's primary concern is the occupant of the garden. And who was the occupant according to the scriptures? Adam, right? The snake slithered into his kingdom, which is precisely the point of the fall and the failings of Adam. In fact, if this was referring to Satan, why is the serpent not referred to? Elements of Adam in the garden from, from Genesis 1 to 3 can be seen, but nothing of this refers back to the scenes of the serpent. Surely that would be the focal point. No terms for Satan are used in Ezekiel 28. 
As well as functional, ancient signets were crafted as a work of art. Adam too was skillfully created into the signet of perfection, perfect in beauty. Beauty can encompass all good attributes. In addition, he was full of wisdom, counted blameless in his ways. He was the beautiful, unblemished, authentic, noble priest king. Now, earlier we saw that the Lord walked in the garden for the purposes of communing with man and connected this verb with God's fellowship with men such as Noah and Abraham. And Ezekiel now uses the same verb in verse 14, saying Adam walked the garden. And immediately after this verse, he adds that Adam was blameless. Now, this is unsurprising, but consider too that not only did Noah walked with God, but he is described as blameless. Now God would say to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. Noah and Abraham were to follow Adam's original state of being blameless and close connection walking with the Lord. Again, this points to man, Adam, and not the cherub or Satan. We observe the parallels of Adam being put in the garden. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. Isaiah 11 includes in all my holy mountain, which is a description of the restoration of Jerusalem unto the paradise of Eden. Mythology, along with the mention of a northern mountain in Isaiah 14, persuade some to believe Ezekiel is referring to Mount Zaphon in, in northern Syria. Um, again, this stems from a dematological framework of, of the passage. On the contrary, scholar Leslie Allen rebuts, it is likely a polemical transfer to the sanctuary of Zion was in Ezekiel's mind and that he projected it onto Tyre, where the king was traditionally also priest. It means that Adam is the one uh, who it says, you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. This fits with the picture that we painted earlier from Genesis 2, with uh, the four rivers that flowed from the mountaintop spring. Block notes the possibility that the garden is on the mountain. Allen translates this second sentence of verse 14 as, On God's sacred mountain you lived, and amidst the blazing gems you walked about. These literal blazing gems or stones of fire as symbols of glory equate to more than a landscape design upon a mountain. Adam was privileged to walk on this holy mountain, walking around to guard, serve, watch, maintain, etc. in his role as priest king. Again, these verses give us a glimpse as to what may have existed on the holy mountaintop. It's not too far-reaching to say that a temple structure ded dedicated to God with altars and decorative works such as stones of fire existed, a throne too for Adam, the designated signet of perfection, the deputized priest-king to rule from. A priest should be adorned appropriately. The nakedness of an unblemished man in an unblemished sanctuary was perfectly fitting, yet God prepared on the sixth day of creation a glittering pectoral ready for Adam. Adam was adorned with precious stones set in gold mountains. It is hard to miss the comparison with the Israelite priests who wore four rows of precious stones mounted in gold filigree settings on their breastpiece.
Both here in Ezekiel and in Exodus describe the costly covering in a similar way. For example, Bloch explains, one, both lists group the stones in triads, probably reflecting their arrangement in rows. Secondly, they start out identically with carnelian or sardius and topaz. Number three, Ezekiel's second triad is identical to the fourth triad in Exodus. Number four, although the order is is reversed in both texts sapphire and turquoise or carbuncle appear together now leslie allen connects adam with the priestly garment of ezekiel 28 and his subsequent fall he says it credits the first man with wisdom and adorns him in bejeweled clothing and apparently leaves him dead. He continues the connection of the garment with uh, the Israelite priests, noting the slight difference. He says this, the listing of the nine jewels in a gold setting at verse 13 is evidently borrowed, I don't like the word borrowed, but evidently borrowed from the catalogue of 12 jewels mounted in gold, which were attached to the high priest's breastpiece according to Exodus 28 and 39. The order is slightly different. The LXX, the Septuagint, reinforces the reference by listing all 12 stones. It's interesting that on that last point, uh, the, the translators of the Septuagint used in Jesus' day clearly connected Ezekiel 28 with priestly garments. The priestly connection is hard to miss, but I would suggest the order of the stones are different because the order of the priesthood was different. Adam was the priest king of Eden, whereas the priest and kingly office for the Israelites were separate, akin to not just the, the priest king of Tyre, who at the time was misrepresenting the religion, but to the mysterious figure Melchizedek, the legitimate priest king of Salem, Jerusalem, who blessed Abram. And who follows this order? Jesus, who occupies the offices of both king and priest after the order of Melchizedek. The order of the second Adam corresponds to the order of the first Adam. The first Adam's reign would be cut short through sin and death. The last Adam's reign is eternal. Adam's garment is a kingly garment as well as a priestly one. So it's slightly different according to the order. We would expect then Adam to wear a costly priestly covering similar but somewhat different to the Israelites. Ezekiel 28 paints this picture. Now, I'm not familiar with anyone making that full connection between the order of the stones and the order of the priesthood, but I would hang my hat on it until someone shoots it off. <laughs> Later, the 12 stones would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, for Adam, the 12 stones in four rows on, the, on a breastplate could represent the 12 constellations and the four seasons. Clement of Alexandria wrote that the 12 stones set in four rows on the breast describe for us the circle of the zodiac in the four changes of the year. Did Adam wear 12 stones, one for each primary picture of the zodiac that in turn represent the tribes of Israel? The book of formation, the book of creation, one of the earliest Jewish books to be written which conveys how, how things of the universe came into existence suggests so. 
Now those who picture Satan in this chapter point to the references of the cherub in verse 14 and 16. Satan, however, is not described in the Bible as a cherub, a kind of sphinx-like creature of mixed animal and human appearance. Secondly, the translation of the two references of the cherub, it is admittedly tricky. Most translations read as though it was the cherub who was placed and destroyed or, or expelled, and therefore the whole passage is about the origin and the fall of an angelic creature. However, it can be understood that there are two beings, the cherub and the man, who the story revolves around. James Barr notes that the, the LXX, the Septuagint, translates verse 14 as, with the cherub I placed you. Uh, of verse 14, Bar continues, the cherub expels or destroys you, the central person of the oracle, from among the stones of fire. The LXX again leads this way, and the cherub led you out from among the fiery stones. Some uh, modern translations, such as the, NE, the, the, the NET, follow suit. Verse 14 reads, I placed you there with an anointed guardian cherub. And uh, verse 16, the guardian cherub expelled you. Alan translates verse 14 as, with a winged guardian cherub I set you. And 16, the guardian cherub banished you. So the cherub placed Adam in the garden, presumably under the, the order of the Lord God. And then after the fall, the cherub expelled Adam again under orders. Now, Block prefers just, just one being in the garden, uh, the cherub, um, but he argues that the numerous allusions to Genesis 1-3 to link this cherub with the first man, Adam, of Genesis 2-3. to This is most obvious in the setting of the second oracle in Eden, the Garden of God, but echoes of the original Adam are evident in the characterization of the Prince of Tyre in the first panel and the description of the the cherub in the second. So he sees the cherub, and the cherub as symbolic of man, uh, while Alan asserts it does speak of the Garden of Eden and expulsion from it, of moral perfection before a fall, and of one cherub who is the agent of expulsion. Even if you appeal to the cherub's function as a guardian, this agrees with Genesis 3, where the cherubim will guard over the entrance to the garden. No one is appealing to the cherubim of Genesis 3 and referring to, to Satan. It makes sense that one of the two cherubim kicked, kicked the couple out and then they guarded the garden. What's more, the Old Testament is awfully disinterested in demonology. Bloch explains that a connection between Ezekiel 28 and, and Satan and with, and with Isaiah 14 was a tradition developed around the Second Temple period, uh, later promoted by Oregon, and then conservative Christians picked up the baton. And he goes on to say, but those who interpret the oracle historically reject this approach. Ezekiel's prophecy is indeed couched in extravagant terms, but the primary referent within the context is clearly the human king of Tyre. Ezekiel is dealing with the human condition of pride and detailing the Edenic fall from grace and then connecting it with the present-day king of Tyre. Listen to the words of Alan. The application of, of verses 11 to 19 
to Satan by 3rd and 4th century AD church fathers, Tertullian, Oregon, John Cassian, Cyril of Jerusalem and Jerome, and thence in some modern popular conservative expositions, is based on MT's equation of the king and the cherub and on comparison with Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. It is it is a case of exegeting an element of Christian belief by means of scripture, and so endeavouring to provide it with extra biblical warrant and to fit the passage into the framework of the Christian faith. However, it is guilty of detaching the passage from its literary setting. So Ezekiel makes parallels with the human king of Tyre, created a human uh, with priestly and royal status, placed on the holy mountain and we all agree there's a fall from grace and then expelled and punished with death surely this must be adam as i've mentioned ezekiel 28 is connected with isaiah 14 which in turn is connected with luke 10 and, and revelation 12 which it is which is speaking of satan but i'm not convinced that this chapter of isaiah is referring to satan john oswalt's in-depth commentary on isaiah says this of chapter 14 some of the church fathers linking this passage to Luke 10, 18 and Revelation 12, 8 and 9 took it to refer to the fall of Satan described in those places. However, the great expositors of the Reformation were unanimous in arguing that the context here does not support such an interpretation. This passage is discussing human pride, which, while monumental to be sure, is still human and not angelic. In fact, it is this very character which makes this passage of special interest. Like Ezekiel 28, human pride is the overarching theme of the passage in Isaiah 14, this time addressed primarily to the Babylonian king who thought of himself as high as God. Perhaps we will return to Isaiah 14 in future sessions, but to conclude this section, um, Satan is believed to be the morning star in verse 14. Now, morning star in Latin is translated Lucifer, and so once the connection was made, we gave Satan the name Lucifer. Isaiah 14 could be alluding to the Garden of Eden and, and the great fall of Adam. Um, Oswald says that the fall of man and the consequence of, of death depicted in this passage is entirely congruent with the teaching of Genesis 3. The forbidden fruit was uh, preferred to Adam and Eve as being able to make them like God. Aside from the primary referent, uh, the, the king of Babylon, um, was Adam in Eden, the morning star who fell from grace? <laughs> is Adam Lucifer? <laughs> We know Jesus is referred to as the bright morning star in the context of the new Eden, and perhaps Isaiah is, is foreshadowing the Antichrist, and we'll come back to this. But we now have a more detailed picture of Adam, his status, uh, the garden dwelling, and it also means the Old Testament is less interested in Satan than we may think, though of course he shows up. In summary, the garden's principal status was of God's habitat given to man to rule from, where man communes with God face to face to worship him and to make his name great. Adam was the earthling, the Adam, of earthlings, first of prophets, high priest of humanity, the appointed king of Eden. His rule and reign were to extend globally. He was destined to become the king of kings. Everything about Adam's beauty and blamelessness and wisdom and status pointed to his heavenly authority. The Garden of Eden became the microcosmic expression of kingdom territory. Man was 
created to rule his dominion and steward the land well as the image bearer and good servant king in recognition of the universal king. If he fulfills his duties, he would continue to walk in and enter in the rest of the presence of God. Adam is given every chance for greatness, his status, attributes, wealth, put, put in a highly fertile land, a privileged dwelling on a holy mountain, adorned with dazzling gems, to walk down the path of the stones of fire in the presence of the almighty Yahweh Elohim. Adam was the son of God, the prophet, priest, and king. He was about to take on one more role, bridegroom. Now, in the garden, and again before the creation of the woman, God parades before the man, the land animals, and the birds to name. Having been told to exercise authority over the animals, now he is told to speak from that position of authority and discernment. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Naming or renaming is to exercise authority. As priest king he was beginning the fulfillment of the genesis 128 commission whether he received it at this point or not in doing so he reflects god speaking the names of creation in genesis 1 god remains sovereign over the animals but man is directed to exercise authority over them Frutenbaum is convinced this speaking and naming was a form of early Hebrew. He says all the names in the Hebrew Bible before the Tower of Babel only have meanings in Hebrew. He says all word plays before Babel only make sense in Hebrew. Now it is possible that Adam named only the animals that were to live in the garden, um, but as the representative over all the earth, it would make sense that he names them all. Now, how would how would it be po possible to name them all in the same day? Well, Adam named the hundreds of different kinds of animals and birds, not species. In addition, he was given the best memory and, and the highest intellect in history, achieving such a feat in a matter of hours before the creation of his wife was not a problem. The text says that he named all the livestock, the beasts and the birds, but only the beasts and the birds are mentioned as being brought uh, to him, likely because uh, the beasts and the birds are, are wild, so they would be required to be brought to him, whereas he could approach uh, the, the livestock which were, which were more tame. It's also possible that only the livestock dwelled in the garden, whereas the beasts of the field dwelled in the, the outer region of Eden and beyond, uh, which is described more like a field. And therefore, the beasts were, were brought into the garden before the king. The potential problem for Adam was that these creatures were not a suitable helpmate. In naming them himself, he would, he would see the unsuitability of a mate. Not that he was, he was looking at this point, but, but Adam would see for himself that an animal cannot be his companion. Suspense kind of builds as he, as he names. Adam was, he was probably thrilled to be in this position, but I imagine that, that we would become you know, even more and more disheartened as, as the queue went past, almost like Simon Cowell auditioning, and then finally, finally at the end of the day, there's one who's completely different and beautiful and suitable. Um, Adam would look down this, this long line of creatures which he's never seen before, remember, and he'd be like, wow, <laughs> what's this with a long trunk and big ears, right? And, and if they queued up in pairs, he would see that each each has a female mate, and it would underscore Adam's kind of potential loneliness. Perhaps he felt a sense of 
incompleteness without her. He would see that while he and they are, are living creatures from the ground, they do not stand tall like a man before God reflecting his image. Even the cattle, the livestock, uh, more likely man's best friend, do not fit. I mean, today, pets are an incredibly popular choice, aren't they? And there's great appeal in a loyal creature that does not speak hurtful things. However, it is humans that are to be our primary companions. Animals can be of great help, but none was found to be his equal. A pair was necessary. Throughout the creation process, we've seen how nature is designed to fit. The plants and the birds fit the heavens, the fish fit the seas, and the animals and man fit the land. And within the creatures, there is a male and female fit. Man requires a female fit. Adam is not consulted on the issue, nor does he complain. God alone discerns and resolves the situation before it becomes an issue, saying, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This verse can be literally translated, a helper who is his equal. She would gently challenge, give counsel and assist while remaining no less inferior. Now those who take umbrage at the word helper should know that God refers to himself and is referred to as the same Hebrew word helper on numerous occasions. In the New Testament Greek, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit on three occasions as the helper. The same Hebrew word for helper is used to describe God's relationship to Israel. The creation of woman saves the man from potential loneliness. He was, after all, designed for close affection. Wenham notes, to help someone does not imply that the helper is stronger than the helped, simply that the latter's strength is inadequate by itself. She would be the perfect fit. As well as equal, Wenham says it can be translated literally as like opposite him, which seems to express the notion of complementarity rather than identity. It does not say like him. Right? She's made in the image of God, not Adam. A corresponding helper, equal and different. Corresponding physically, socially and spiritually. Unlike the man, the woman was created in the garden. A softer, more pleasant environment reflected in her creation. One verse is used to describe the creation of man, whereas six are used for woman. This conveys the care and attention through the process. In contrast to other religions, woman is of great value. Verse 21 to 22 reveals the process. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. Adam had only been in the garden a matter of hours before God puts him to sleep, and it should teach us that God can put any of us to sleep at any moment. The word made is translated by Hamilton as built. He says, the verb built by its very definition implies beauty, stability 
and durability, both made from raw materials, from the dust or the clay of the ground, God as the potter formed the man, and then from the flesh of the man, God as the developer formed the woman. The piece taken from Adam, it must have been bone and flesh um, because of what he is about to say. Uh, so rib, rib with some flesh makes sense. God uh, took an internal part so that it wouldn't show that something was missing when he was naked or clothed. God healed Adam then after surgery. The woman was taken from man but comes from God alone. Man takes no credit. Neither are active in the creation of the other. Recalling the process, Paul says that man is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Both are made in the image of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Paul uh, continues in verse 12 by expressing the, the dependency of the sexes on each other. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Recognising our differences in service to one another, we look up to God who provides and sustains all things. In Genesis 2, God is pictured as a planter, the garden, a potter, man, and a developer, the woman. God took the female corresponding companion and brought her to the man. One could say the son of God walked the bride down the aisle to meet her bridegroom, the human son of God. She was a gift to Adam. Both uh, the animals and the woman were brought to the man and the man named them. The animals are his inferior, the woman his equal. Yet the naming of both suggests the bridegroom's authority over his bride. Wenham underscores, though they are equal in nature, that the, that the man names the woman indicates that she is expected to be subordinate to him, an important presupposition of the ensuing narrative. A relational design intended to teach mankind, among other things, about the goodness of God and his authority over and service to his, his bride, the church. Other than Adam's dazzling pectoral, which um, he may not be wearing, um, reserving them for kind of inner temple duties amid the stones of fire, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Made of spirit and body, their relationship would be physical with no barriers between them. They were unaware of their nakedness. Innocent, they were, they were not ashamed. They were unabashed like children. They saw each other's nakedness and they did not lust. The flesh was not waging war against the spirit. There was nothing to hide. There was no fear of exploitation. Naked before each other and God. Nakedness is positive here. They were pure. Now, after the fall, the world would be flipped upside down and then nakedness would be negative. It would be a description of, of poor, of shame, of guilt, of birth. They were created adults uh, capable of sexual intercourse. Um, perhaps they had no belly buttons. How old did they appear? Rabbinic tradition says they looked about the age of 20. 
it's a unique scenario. Um, they, they, they wouldn't have had the same kind of wrinkles and sun damage, etc., of someone, um, someone of age in a kind of post-fall conditions. Uh, but personally, I think Adam will have been made to, to look mature to correspond to the age of Jesus at the time of his ministry and death. Their creation included an impartation of an instantaneous complex language at the first gift of tongues for sophisticated relationship with each other and uh, the Lord their God. Adam, um, as, as first bridegroom, in seeing the woman which was created from him, he opens his mouth and he bursts into poetry. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It is a literary formula that includes a trinity of seven syllables. Comparable expressions are found throughout the scriptures, such as Laban saying to Jacob, you are my bone and my flesh. All the tribes of Israel who pledged a loyalty and allegiance to David at Hebron saying, behold, we are your bone and flesh. Adam's words are covenantal language, announcing this woman as his flesh and blood, his biological bride, a relationship that shared in the body and the blood. As well as kinship, it, it is also ex an expression of common reciprocal loyalty, pledging his life for her. Flesh can represent the, the fragility of mankind and bone the strength of mankind. And 6,000 years on, our modern language in weakness and in strength can be found in a marriage ceremony. Adam was vocalizing his marriage vows to her. He was showing his enduring, lifelong commitment to her, even when the flesh breaks down to the point that bones alone remain. As the garden priest, he initiates his own wedding, overseen and blessed by God, a couple of cherubim perhaps as witnesses. The narrator in verse 24 adds, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Woman was part of man, and now her son leaves his mother's flesh to join another woman's flesh, becoming one flesh. The author is applying the principle of marriage to all marriages. It's a good example of significance application beyond the narrative. In marriage, man's priorities change. Throughout the scriptures, the verb leave, which can be translated forsake, is used to describe the breaking of a covenant. To hold fast is also used elsewhere to describe the faithfulness to a covenant. Therefore, the man leaves the covenant relationship of his parents only to enter and maintain a new covenant with his wife. There is a severing of ties moving from the position of subjection to parents to the position of honouring the parents. Now, a breaking of ties does not mean leaving them physically necessarily. Um, they could still live with them for all kinds of reasons. But there's, there's a mental, emotional, spiritual departure so that going forwards, they look to each other and not to their parents. They, con they continue to love and now, now honour their parents, but their focus is on each other. To cleave is to stick like glue to each other. It's often used in maintaining a covenant. 
They are bound, they're tied to each other. They're destiny bound as a team. Prager adds that God ordains here that one husband should cleave to one wife. Marriage then is a lifelong covenant of man and woman before God, regardless of circumstances. Not a a convenient episodic adventure. It is not determined by health. It is not determined by having children or not. Nothing is said at this point about procreation. Together they become one ikad, one flesh, initiated, inaugurated by sexual intercourse, a sexual, uh, emotional, spiritual and family union. The nature and purpose of marriage is founded in these chapters, bride and God. Frutenbaum says the first days of the first days of the first marriage remain a goal to which Israel hoped to return when the promises to Abraham were fulfilled. Man's headship over woman before the fall is obvious, and only spiritual blindness on this issue can cause a cloud of controversy. Woman was made for man and from man and brought to man and given to man and named by man. New Testament authors would reach back to the creation account to point to these truths to teach about order within the home, society and church worship. In doing so, they reveal the universal significance without cultural reasoning. It is God's ordained order, not our opinion, that matters. Having performed surgery on the man and making a woman from his rib, brought the two together in a marriage covenant, provided them with a diet of vegetation, crop and fruit. It is now that he blessed them. Adam, with his helper, was commissioned to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. How do they fulfill the commission of Genesis 1.28 to subdue? By being the image of God. Beale offers an insight into the potential meaning of this commission. They were to reflect God's kingship by being his vice regents on earth. Because Adam and Eve were to subdue and rule over all the earth, it is plausible to suggest that they were to extend the geographical boundaries of the garden until Eden covered the whole earth. That Eden was a sacred space uh, does not mean that the rest of the earth was was deserted or chaotic. Um, He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited, it says in Isaiah 45, 18. Whether the actual boundaries of Eden were to be extended or not, as image bearers they would fill the earth and extend the image from the sacred space so that God's glorious presence and attributes were reflected and felt throughout the globe. Adam's various roles such as his priestly aspect to work and to keep it was an expression of the mission to subdue. He was given a lifelong teammate to help and according to Beale um, 128 includes an implicit promise to provide them ability to obey, a work undoubtedly of the Holy Spirit. Having been given a dominionship of the land, Adam, the son of God, became the king of Eden, the king of humanity who would bow the knee to God the Son. A kingdom requires a people group to live in a land and abide by the law of the king. Adam was to subdue and fill the earth with people, extending the glory of the garden and making the entire earth a special place for God to dwell.
Vlack remarks, from the Garden of Eden onward, it has been God's desire for his people to rule over the earth in his direct presence. In closing then, God's law went forth from the mountain of Eden. Adam became the first serving priest, the king of humanity, blessed with a paradisal garden home, a source for everlasting life, and the relationship between man and God was personal and complete. The first man and woman then would be Edenites of the kingdom of Eden. Everything was in place for success, in a land flowing with milk and honey, with a great people to descend from the newlyweds. Adam's name would be made great, and in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Or so it could have been. And God delighted in the garden and Adam and his bride. The story then begins with creation and marriage, and we know it ends with recreation and marriage. Adam would reign the first millennium as a type of Messiah, but the last Adam, the true Messiah, will rule the seventh. Adam didn't make it into the second millennium, but Jesus will continue into the eighth and forevermore. I hope this has been helpful, insightful, stirring, and another filter on your worldview. If you've got this far, please like and subscribe. Every blessing to you.